And hello, everybody. Welcome on into the Check Your Brain podcast. It's Tony Mazur, and thank you for subscribing, whether you're listening for free on wherever you get your podcasts, or if you subscribe on Patreon for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. That's the additional podcasts and early access to guests and features and segments, and one of those features happens to be this podcast that turns a year old around this time. I kind of, it was a little fluid when I put things out there and guests and what I'm going to do with it, but I decided to slowly launch my podcast about a year ago, and there have been a lot of reasons why I started a podcast, of course, because, you know, everybody has a podcast, every comedian, every radio guy, uh, everyone and their grandmother has a podcast they have in their basement, so why would I start one of my own? Well, let's be honest here. It was an opportunity for me to have another outlet to start to rant and rave about things that were really <laughs> making me angry uh, going on in the press and you know a lot of the COVID stuff, as you've probably heard on some of the podcasts. So I decided to start my own on Patreon, and I feel that I need to also put out free content. And I think a lot of people who do behind paywall podcasting or video podcasting or what have you, they don't understand that, or maybe they do understand and they just don't really care, but I feel you have to give people an incentive in order to pay for more content. Hey, I like what you have. I'll sign up, but you have to give them something in order to sign up. And so if you're just going to say, hey, we're going to be behind a paywall, and then you wonder, boy, we really petered out and plateaued with our subscribers right now. Well, yeah, because you're not doing other people's radio shows or podcasts or doing a free podcast to give somebody an opportunity. So, okay, let's say 100 people listen to your, say for just using an example, a nice round number, let's say 100 people listen to your free podcast. What are the odds that out of those 100, they're going to follow you to your paywall podcast? And I would probably say very slim because people enjoy free content. But for those people who do want to come by, they are true fans, and they want to hear a little bit more from you. So that's why I decided to do the free Wednesday podcast, and then I put out four podcasts per week on my Patreon. So uh, for folks who haven't listened to me in this full year, maybe you've heard the last couple of episodes, maybe the last couple of months, maybe last seven months, let's say. I've uh, done the, a lot of these podcasts where I talk to people that I, I truly admire. Some of them are promoting things like books. Others are just people that it was such a great conversation that I wanted to include it. So what I'm going to do in this podcast, now it's kind of like the Seinfeld Chronicles, if you remember that. Not the, not the beginning, what it, the original show should have been called. It was actually supposed to be called the Seinfeld Chronicles. So then just was shortened to Seinfeld. But, but at the end of some seasons towards the end, they would do like a clip show, a highlight show. So you'd sit there, you're like, oh, I can't wait to watch Seinfeld tonight. And it's just a highlight show. And I, I get it. So you may not exactly be interested in this podcast. To be, I'm going to be 100% honest. You know, if you listen from the beginning, you're like, I already heard this. I'm not going to, I'll skip it this week. But for folks who haven't heard these, these are just snippets, a few minutes of a couple of guests, actually about six different guests from the early portion of the podcast. So when, Actually, before I started, I interviewed a couple of these people before it was even out there, and I had a nice backlog of podcasts where I can uh, put them out there in interviews. So these are six interviews with people. I, either they were talking about something I re- 
kind of enjoyed uh, having a discussion on, or it was just uh, just a fun time, whether they were promoting anything or not. So in this podcast, you will hear from former Met great Daryl Strawberry, but not talking about baseball. He's talking about God. Then I also have my buddy Don Jameson, who's a comic who we talk about nightmare comedy gigs. Chef Andrew Gruel, who's had to manage restaurants all throughout the pandemic of shutdowns, lockdowns, and you know tape and social distancing. John Biner, who was had his own show Bizarre and was part of the Van Dyken Company. It was on The Odd Couple back in the day. Tom Baddock is a uh, the creator of Funky Winker Bean and Crankshaft, and talk to him about cartooning. And finally, uh, Tom Leopold, somebody I've actually gotten to know the last couple of years, who uh, was a writer also on Seinfeld and Cheers, but also was an actor and had bit parts in Mannix and some of those 1970s shows, and actually was in the running to be Fonzie with, uh, I think, Mickey Dolenz and Tom Leopold, and there might have been somebody else, and then Henry Winkler. I think uh, worked out for Henry, I guess. So, I hope you enjoy these podcasts. I'm going to do an intro before each one of them uh, so you get to know who is who and what is what. So the first podcast, like I mentioned about Daryl Strawberry, we, we talk about religion, talk about trying to manage ourselves and, and better ourselves all throughout this pandemic. Well, the last year has changed for all of us, and it's it's part of part of being able to deal with what what comes along, you know, and what has come along in life is the pandemic. And, and you hate to see so many people um, go back and start using and that have a problem with addiction uh, and drinking. Uh, you hate to see that happen. But, you know, that's the problem with uh, people not having a true foundation in God, you know. And I think, you know, me having a foundation and just saturating myself in the Bible during these times uh, has allowed me to grow even more. So uh, you separate yourself from the television, watching the news, and separate yourself from social media and interacting with that. I think when you do that and you utilize, you know, your platform for good, you stay in good. You you create who you are and you talk about the good. You don't talk about you don't talk about the things that are going wrong because it's always be, things that are going to go wrong. But I just don't interact with that, so I don't get that in my spirit. I think people get disturb, disturbed inside their spirit, and they allow the um, earthly things to take over them. So. I prefer, you know, just stand spiritually sound and, and biblically um, principle um, grounded in everything that I do. So I won't, um, you know, so I, so I won't, you know, fall into any other traps. Yeah, and I've struggled with that myself in the last year. It's not, I don't have an addictive personality, so, uh, you know, I can, you know, I'll have, a, I'll have a beer or two or I'll do dry January. And either way, it doesn't really affect me. But what I have struggled with as a Christian in the last year with churches closing and you kind of, it, it, I guess in some way you lose a little bit of faith in humanity when you start looking at, you know, whatever happened at the, at the Capitol building and, you know, whatever with elections or just the things that you've seen in the last year from what you see in the media. And kind of part of that is, and what, what kind of sucks for me is this being somebody in the media is that it's, it's difficult for me to turn it off, to, to just go, look, if I just shut the TV off, if I, whether I'm reading the Bible, reading different passages, or I'm just in, in my own isolation and praying and talking to God, that it, there's been that difficulty in the last year for me personally, and I'm, I'm sure for millions of other people in America, where you are people of faith, but there's, 
you just feel almost helpless. Is anybody listening to me? And it's it's always that that struggle session. And I, I you know, me personally, even to this day, I'm still struggling with that and trying to get through that. And I'm sure a lot of people have probably felt the same way and have asked you for guidance with that as well. Yeah, well, I, you know, faith is the, faith is the most important thing. You can't lose sight of faith. You know, you like like I said, most people get consumed with everything else because they're watching television, they're listening to all the wrong things. Uh, your answers are not gonna come from that. Your answers are not gonna come from social media. Your answers will come from the Bible. And that's where people have to run to. We run to all these other things to try to make us feel better, and it's impossible for them to make us feel better. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, it's not seen. That's what faith is operating. People don't understand scriptures. That's why they're not victorious. You know, I live a victorious life because of the Bible. I don't live a victorious life because there's anything great about Daryl Strawberry. It's the Bible. It's what's great about God's word. It's there. It's been there. The problem is, it's like the Bible said, my people perish because of lack of knowledge. People don't have knowledge and understanding of the Bible. That's why they're not having the joy even in the midst of the storm of life right now. You, you can have joy in every season of your life if you know the Bible and you study God's word. See, I study God's word instead of listening to the news and getting opinions from what we want to see there, you know, because what we see there is we see darkness. You know, when we watch that, it's everything is everything is darkness. It's, it's broken, broken generation, lawlessness. Everything that we're seeing in the nation is what the Bible said it would be. So, uh, you know, I think people got to grab a hold of getting closer to God by spending time with God. If you don't spend enough quality time with God, you're going to feel empty on the inside. And it's the interpretation, too, is that we you know there's there's different sects of christianity and you you try to find what is right for you and what feels and sometimes it's not going like you're going to find out a lot about yourself that you may not like but it's part of that learning process and i think what happens is is that with with the internet and with the accessibility to just anything from you know just you know what you think are silly videos to to different uh, aspects of the news, or even pornography is another bad one, is it's right there. And the the possibility where you have you could have your bookshelf next to you, and you, you see the Holy Bible is right next to you, yet you're on your computer, and you can do God knows what by basically two clicks of a mouse. And it's that... It's that feeling of of giving in. It's that don't get behind me, Satan mindset that I think a lot of us really need to try to work on, especially going forward, as we hopefully are coming out on the other side of this pandemic, that we can kind of wake up and just go, look, what is most important here? Is is, is my online presence? Is my Instagram account? Is is this what's important? Is this is this clout good for me? Or what it is, what is it that it's going to get me through the rest of my life? And for somebody who is an eight-time all-star, it, you you seem to be right now the happiest you've been, and you've you denied yourself of those temptations because it really gets better on the other side. Wow, it gets a hundred and ten percent better. See, you know, you don't you don't fall into the foolishness. I think so many of us get consumed with the foolishness instead of what is really right. You know, to do right takes discipline just like to play ball to train yourself you have to discipline yourself you don't become a great athlete if you don't train and you don't discipline yourself and that's the same thing in god's word if you don't train yourself and you're not disciplined you won't you won't feel the victory you'll feel in that place where this is pulling at me see 
I don't get consumed with that, you know, because no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. It didn't say it, it, it didn't say it wouldn't prosper over you. It said it wouldn't form, you know, against you, you know, and that's what we, I mean, that's what we deal, deal with, you know, it's not going to, I mean, it's going to form against you, but it will not prosper over your life. I said that wrong. That's what I meant to say. It's not going to prosper over your life because you don't get caught up into the foolishness. And I think that's where everybody needs to know who you are. You need to know who you are in Christ. And so many people don't know who they are in Christ. They assume I'm a Christian. I go to church, but I go to church and I don't do anything uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to, to feel myself. You know, I just go to church on Sunday and that's what happens to so many people. God is every day. I wake up every day and I worship God and I spend time in his word or doing something, you know, that's going to help me stay focused on the purpose of my creation and what God brought me here for. And here's a portion of my podcast I did with Don Jamison. We talked about some nightmare gigs, and you'll hear one of mine when I had to deal with the, the Ron Jeremy gig from about five years ago. Oh, man. You, oh, God, well, you know, you just, like, whenever I hear a comics doing those, those marathon shows of, like, two-plus hours, man, I just always go, look, like, you know, my hero's dice, you know, but even and and Dice is you know Dice is usually good. Dice will do about an hour, you know, maybe an hour fifteen if he's really cooking, you know. And for me, even watching Dice, like as much as I I worship him, that's about that's about it. That's about where you're like, yeah, that was perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't need any more than that. So when you hear about the you know Eddie Griffins and the Mencias and these guys doing two, you know Ralphie May when he was alive, do three hour shows and be like. Oh my God, like what a nightmare. Wouldn't you, you know, don't you want to save a little bit? You know, isn't this, I think there's something to be said for, you know, leave them want, wanting more. Um, and I found out early on in headlining, man, um, I was doing this club down in Baltimore and I had forgotten, I had an intro music on the CD and, and I forgot it in the DJ booth in the room. And now, you know, the shows are all over and the wait staff is with the club owner and they're counting their money out and they're turning in their tickets. I snuck back in the room and it was dark. And so I went up in the DJ booth. They didn't see me come in, but I could hear them talking and all the waitresses were going, oh, you know, you know, Oh my God, you got to have this guy, Don Jameson back here, man. The guy is, he's a machine. He does 45 minutes on the nose every single night he, you you could set a clock by this guy and and they go and then you know one of the other ones like yeah like we won't have to pay an extra hour for the babysitter and then the other one's like yeah now me and my husband could go out a little bit tonight and get out and like everyone has fucking lives to live you know they don't want they don't want to see some comic you know up on stage you know who's been up for three days doing coke you know doing their three hour special up there so yeah, I, I just, I don't care how funny you are, man. Same with music. It's like Springsteen does three and a half hour shows. It's like, give me the best 90 minutes and let's go home. I, you know, I, I don't got all night for this. One of my other nightmare gigs I did a few years ago, and it was uh, doing a show with Ron Jeremy. And, oof. oof. Who fancies himself, you know, like an elite cop. Oh, yeah. It's, it, well, it, anytime I had said, Hey, I'm doing the show on Mar uh, May 4th. It's with Ron Jeremy, and every single person says, "Wait, he does comedy." And then my answer to it afterwards is, "Not well." <laughs> you know, it's a bad show when you're at, we're at a rock club, so it was a one nighter. You know, you're at a bad show when he goes up first. <laughs> 
it was it, it was basically it was like if they wanted to bill it as a showcase of a couple of comics then it was the the, the MC comes out on stage he goes how's it going everybody you guys ready for Ron Jeremy and everyone's like yeah well here he is and he goes out and people are going crazy and they can't wait everyone's wearing a black t-shirt and they can't wait to get their picture with him afterward and he has a little harmonica and he's like doing like old Jewish, uh, you know, j jingles from the 50s and telling jokes that were, you know, a couple people laughed and then a few more laughed and then nobody started laughing and was just bombing immediately because the feeling of, oh, I'm seeing Ron Jeremy went away after two attempts at jokes. And then that was one of those where I, I, I'm not doing comedy, like I'm not a 30-year veteran in comedy, so I got to do anything I can to save the show because people are, are wanting their money back. It's so bad. It's just, there were a few comics on the bill and one bombed after another. And I'm just like, you know what? I got to do it. And I, I, I thought, I went in my book of Jackie Martling street jokes and just started telling, doing my material, Jackie Martling street joke. My material, Jackie joke. And that's what it was, and it's it saved the show. And like, oh, do you want to stick around? Nope, I got my picture with Ron. I got an autograph, and I'm out. I'm out the door. I'm not staying for the rest of the show. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to follow Ron Jeremy on a comedy stage, you know, or in a threesome. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I I want to say I opened for Ron Jeremy, but I have to qualify that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, there's a, that's the thing when you're a comic too, man. You talk about nightmare gigs. It's like. Some nights, man, you know, it's whatever the situation is. Yours was the Ron Jeremy. But you, like, you start, you have to dig down deep. Like, you, where you go, I got to I gotta pull something out of my ass here. I have no idea how I'm going to do this. And, and, you, and then what happens is you just take a chance and you got to go for it. Um, I played at Sturgis a couple times mm. in front of those biker crowds, man. And what they do is, like, if they... It's a weird thing. Like if they um, if they like a band, when the band gets done with a song, they rev up their motorcycles. That lets you know they like you. But if they don't like you, they rev up while you're playing. <laughs> so now here I got to go up, and you know, and I was out on the road with Faster Pussycat at the time. So so now and now all the bikers are coming up. You know, there's like a foreigner cover band playing, and they come up and they're revving up on the on the foreigner cover band while they're playing mm. and i'm like oh my god i mean and they were great they i mean they sounded exactly like foreigner like i was actually really enjoying them and i go if they don't like these foreigner guys they're gonna hate me that's oh comic why we're the comedian here so i'm flipping out backstage tony i'm going nuts i'm like what am i gonna do here and i kept looking out and i see and i saw this group of bikers pull up and um and the one guy had he, this huge guy had no shirt on. He looked exactly like Stone Cold Steve Austin. So, so that's what I. So I just grasped onto that. And when I went, when I went up, I just went right for the biggest biker I could find. And I go, I go, hey, listen, let me just say right now, Stone Cold Steve Austin, don't even try to rev up on me while I'm up here, because I'll come down there and put you in the Stone Cold Stunner, you know. And I'm going into this whole wrestling rant, and he's got his arms folded on his chest not a smirk nothing and then he turns around and all his friends are, are rolling they're cracking up so he turns around and he, and then he like looks and then and then he finally and then i keep attacking him you got a quick then smile on him and then he started cracking 
and fuck next thing you know, and I had them. They liked me, you know, because I just went for it. Now, that could have went a whole other way. Here's Chef Andrew Gruel on managing restaurants all throughout a pandemic and all the different changes in the goalposts moving in this last two years. We learned so much about this pandemic in the very beginning, right? Let's go back and look at the emotional stages. And you, you see, I keep bringing up emotion here because it's, we just have to call it what it is and recognize that the world, United States, is being managed by emotion, not reason and logic. And if we look at it even from the emotional perspective, everybody was on board with flattening this 15-day curve, right? And everybody was on board with let's just take a step back and let's analyze and get as much information as we can, find patterns, and then utilize that to, to move forward properly. So what are the things we learned in the very beginning? Social distancing helps. Okay, no big deal. I don't like people in my space anyway. <laughs> the, the pandemic was, um, was, was really affecting the elderly. It was affecting those, uh, those many who were obese. And it was affecting those with underlying conditions. But what we did realize, the positives, were that it wasn't affecting kids. It wasn't affecting young people. We were still questionable about the asymptomatic spread. We also recognized that once you had the virus, you developed immunity, right? We knew those things immediately. So why then would we not say, okay, well, here's what we do know. And we're going to allow businesses to operate knowing that these people are safe. These people are safe. And we're going to, we are going to focus on protecting the vulnerable, those who are vulnerable to this disease. We are going to quarantine the sick or those who are going to easily get sick. And we're going to allow the economy and the free market to operate moving forward concurrent to these protectionist measures, right? No, we didn't do any of that. Instead, we're 15 months later and we're jumbling and arguing with each other. Like people need to step outside of the sphere of emotion right now and recognize the BS that we're facing and the the, the detrimental long-term effect, like you say, the restaurant industry has been completely decimated. Um, and there is absolutely no argument to be made that it hasn't been. And we are going to feel the effects of the financial, um, um, you know, the financial manipulation, the quantitative easing, et cetera, for decades, as you say. And we're already seeing the inflationary effects in the restaurant industry throughout the entire distribution and supply chain and the effects that it has on labor. And when things started shutting down last year and they were staying shut down. So March, like you said, I, I get maybe if we need to take like a, a quick break and the flattening the curve, which we don't hear about. But by April, we're sitting there watching our respective governors on TV get o or give us orders on what we can and cannot do, which is so totalitarian that it's it's almost we're, we're going to look back years from now wondering why we didn't do anything about this. So it's April, May of 2020. And the one thing that when people are talking about, oh, you can't reopen now because the virus is still out there. And I'm thinking to myself, and the other one, big one was gyms, was I'm a guy who liked going to the gym. And if I'm not feeling well, way before the pandemic, but especially now, if I'm not feeling 100%, I'm going to skip that day. And I think everybody who wants to go to their favorite restaurant or their gym or their bar or church or wherever they want to assemble, if they're not feeling 100% that day, COVID or not, they're gonna, especially now, they're going to say, look, Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, I will go. So people were actually very, when we talk about 
we're all in this together. That was part of it. I don't want my gym shut down. I don't want my favorite restaurant and bar shut down. So if I could be the chief vector of an outbreak, if I, God forbid, had something like that, I'm staying home over it. It's common sense. And it's the same thing as going into the nursing homes, that if I'm not feeling well and I'm not going into a place where there's 80 and 90 and 100-year-olds there, I'm just not going to go. You have to use your common sense. And the thing is, we threw common sense, we collectively in the country, threw it out the window and decided to base everything on fears and pseudoscience. And that's, and that's, and that's where you came into the picture for me, where I started recognizing you, that I've seen you on some of the shows, the Food Network shows and, uh, and Chop Jr. and everything, was that you were the one that was really out there saying, look, we, w- we need to stay open, we need to be creative. So if we could do outdoor dining... And you're talking in Southern California where it's nice all year round, and really there was no data that outdoor transmission was causing like a large or even any outbreaks, and yet they were still shutting you guys down. They were still shutting us down, and I said it. The unintended or intended consequence of shutting down outdoor dining was going to be a spike in cases because it was doing two things. It was driving people into backyard neighborhood-style parties where there's no accountability. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to be held to a standard of accountability, but let's just face the reality of human behavior. When you are in a public setting, you are more accountable, right? You hold yourself to a different standard. If that wasn't the case, then we would all go out every day in our pajamas, right? Um, and why remove that accountability? Why remove the, the, the you know, the, the fact that we can all be managing ourselves with social distancing and, you know, according to their science, wearing masks, what have you. And look, that's exactly what happened. Um, and, and we all just blindly took, took the advice and we ate it up like doggy treats. The fact is, and what you just described is a scenario where the government, right, in an, an, an enterprise or an institution full of questionable, unethical, um, um, fraudulent people by, by both sides standards is the entity or the enterprise that is making decisions based on our health in any absence of they are totally immune to any recourse when it comes to these decisions. So you have this diffusion of responsibility that forces people to make decisions that aren't right because who cares if they make the wrong decision? Why am I going to trust Newsom or or heck or even DeSantis for that matter, one side or the other? Why am I going to trust this role model to make a decision based on my life, the science, when they've proven themselves to be liars when it comes to the science. Fauci said in the beginning, oh, well, the reason I wasn't recommending masks was because I didn't want there to be panic buying. So I lied to everyone. Okay, you just lost all credibility with me. But 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 people are like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. He's got to lie to everybody. He's the chief doctor of America now based on what the media has made him. And he admits to lying to us in the beginning and day one of the pandemic. That's one hell of a standard to set. Here we have actor, impressionist, comedian, John Biner here on the podcast to talk about meeting Groucho Marx and having an opportunity to meet some of the people who really inspired him early on, all the way up to his days of where he was really young kid, basically, on The Ed Sullivan Show. A couple meetings. The first one was uh, I, I went out to L.A. Uh, uh, to see my agent for something. I was still in L- uh, living in New York. And, uh, you know, I, when I say I went out to live in L.A. with Steve Allen, I, I, I'd gone out to, uh, to L- L.A. before that, not to live, but to, to see my agent out there. 
because they had something for me and, and he took me to to the, um, uh, the Friars Club uh, in, in, uh, Holly, in Beverly Hills <clears throat> and uh, to see uh, one of his people is going, was going to perform I've forgotten who but what but, but sitting there and, and, and there was an intermission and everybody gets up and they're moving around to different tables and stuff and I'm sitting by myself my agent went to the bar to get some drinks or whatever and, uh, and I see Groucho Marx who had been sitting closer to the stage in a, in a round table and those people had gotten that and leaving him by himself with his cigar and, and I said geez I'm going to I'm going to go over and say hi to him because I loved his stuff, you know. And uh, and I said, uh, Mr. Marks, you don't know me, but I, I, I just think you're wonderful. And he said, oh, I know who you are. I know you. I know who you are. What I don't know is why someone who looks like you do does what you do. Now think about that. That's a triple compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and... And I walked away thinking, well, I guess it is somewhere in there. <laughs> and, so, and so I guess what he meant was, why does an Irish-looking guy do George Jessel and Mary Lewis? These guys? Anyway, I, uh, I, 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 years go by, and, uh, and now he's in his uh, beret portion of his life. He wore this beret. This is the Aaron Fleming years. Yeah. And he said, and, and I was I was working with John Davidson. We had a special we did for the Playboy Club. It was the Playboy Club, the Play Bunny of the Year Award, and uh, it was a big show, big stage, a lot of people, blah blah blah. And uh, there's something happened in the uh, with the equipment, and they they asked me to go out there on stage and kind of entertain the people until they got that fixed. So I I go out there, and and there's Groucho sitting in the front row with a a, a friend of mine I'd known for years. Connie Stevens and, mm. and she was and they were escorting each other I guess to the show and and he's sitting there with his beret and his cigar and I and I and I had to tell that story about my first time I had met him among other things but that's one thing I told the story and and I go back to my dressing room after the show there's a knock on the door and I open it and there he stands with his glasses and his, his cigar in his mouth and the beret <laughs> and and his overcoat on and he said if you were a goyle, I'd marry you. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, what you really? What a life you've had, and yeah. you know, it, you I, it, it, you've met your heroes. It's they. They always talk about don't meet, don't ever meet your heroes. But you not only met them, but they've oh, had yeah. complimentary things to say about you as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely neat. Yeah, you bet, you bet. You know, I met the Duke. I met the Duke and uh, John Wayne and and Lee Marvin. I worked with. That's on YouTube. G- John Wayne and Lee Marvin. If you want to have some fun, watch that. We there was a tribute to John Wayne. Frank Sinatra was the host. Glenn Campbell was there, and there's all these actors and actresses. You'll see when you when you put that up, and they flashed to him laughing at me and 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 Lee. And we do a takeoff of of John Wayne and Lee Marvin around the campfire, and I'm I'm John Wayne and. And you'll have fun watching that, all of you. Yeah, because you were now. You were doing the. You were doing the Rio Bravo, like you basically did the whole cast of Rio Bravo. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit I did. Yeah, all I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the Walter Martin, Brennan. Yeah. No, I can't shoot. Look at these hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, you grab a boom, ma'am. If you're not going to help out, grab a boom. <laughs> 
Oh, come on, you guys. Don't mess around now. <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> It was just uh, fun to do. Yeah, I encourage everybody to do that. Uh, go on YouTube, uh, not only just buy the book, Five Minutes with Mr. Biner, but go on go on YouTube and check out. Just just search John Biner and go through some of the history and see s- s- some of the shows you were on, including just about uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, you were on Letterman in the Ed Sullivan Theater, and you basically did an abbreviated, super abbreviated version of the Ed Sullivan show. It's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah I had to do, I had to do good. Pay pay homage to Ed and the and the and the people that that studio. I hadn't been in it since since uh, Ed Sullivan had passed. Tom Baddock is the creator of Funky Winkerbean and Crankshaft. So we got to talk a little bit about cartooning. I always wanted to be a cartoonist when I was a kid. Changed that. I ended up working in radio, as you hear right now, and doing podcasts. But at the beginning, I really wanted to get into cartooning. So it was really cool to pick his brain. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, my writing was getting more and more ambitious, and it was starting to outstrip the look of the art. Uh, it, it was getting to be a little incongruous. Um, and I was also getting tougher and tougher to do what I wanted to do because uh, I had a, an image in my head of how I wanted the art to look, and I wasn't able to quite achieve that. Uh, at that time, I was working with Chuck Ayers on Crankshaft. And for a number of reasons, we decided to get, that's when we decided to get a year ahead on the strip. And the only way to do that was to have Chuck come on board and help with the penciling on Funky, because essentially we were doing three strips at the same time at that point. Uh, and he did. And um, that that dramatically started to change the art because I could take it where I wanted it to go. And that allowed the writing to improve because now I had uh, an opportunity to write more mature work. <clears throat> and do things that were more, uh, just more ambitious. Uh, so the art actually helped with that. So that change you notice also reflected what I was able to do as far as the entire script and the writing was concerned. And with the aging of the characters, that there's really, I, I can't think of many strips. I think maybe For Better or For Worse was one of them, and uh, Baby Blues, I think they aged the kids a little bit, but... There really aren't, you know, when you look at Beetle Bailey, who's been around for 70 years, he's still he's still in the camp. And when you look at Dagwood and Blondie, the Dagwood's still making sandwiches uh, for, what, 90 years now. So uh, with it, it was really ambitious. And, it, and you're, you're somebody who's, it's, it's a lot of polarized uh, critics that you were getting around that time, and especially with some of the heavier subjects, but it's ambitious and it's, it's a, the work of a true artist, I have to say, of somebody who can kind of go to that level. I mean, you at 1992, you'd been doing Funky for 20 years, and you say, look, I, I, it seems like it's time to really, and, and to show off the maturity of not only the characters, but myself as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I, I respect the opinion way too much to argue with it on this. But it, it was, it, you know, it was a joy for me because, and there's two schools. There have been a few clips that have allowed their characters to age. And the greatest thing that that does is it allows, well, it does a number of things. It allows you as an artist to grow and mature, which is terrific. It also allows, you know, when I was hired to do Funky, they wanted me to speak to my generation. And it was like the, you know, uh, early 70s. So, Everything that was happening there, there was no strip in the paper except maybe Doonesbury that was dealing with that and looking at that. And so they wanted me to deal with that and talk to my generation. And because I've able, I've been able to age the characters and uh, keep them moving along with me, I've also kept my readers uh, attached to the strip uh, because they've grown up with those characters. Um, comic strips are unique. They come into the house and they, they, they 
unlike any other art form, they were there every single day. And if they're there every single day and they also grow older with you, uh, that's something pretty rare. And it, it makes the strip really gratifying. So I'm so happy I did it. It's a little scary at times, but in the end, uh, I, I'm real satisfied where it took the work. Certain strips, because I think, and I I don't mean to criticize any of your colleagues, but I, well, I'll do it for you if you feel the same way, because I've been... <clears throat> Uh, you know, around this time, and we're recording this here right around Christmas, and you go back and watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown and everything. And Charles Schultz was somebody that I think everybody in this business looks up to in some way. And you got into that precarious position of marketing and franchising the characters to the point where you have uh, you have a every kid has a Snoopy doll in their home and everyone has uh, Woodstock and Linus and Charlie Brown and Lucy all over their Christmas trees and their decorations and then you look up and oh look there's Snoopy on a blimp and it gets into that weird situation of uh, the art and commerce where you have somebody who's that true artist like somebody like a Bill Watterson who didn't want any of his uh, he didn't want a, a, a Hobbs doll in your crib or your bed and he didn't want Calvin talking in a commercial then you have the opposite way of Garfield where basically Jim Davis created a character that he can sell and you're kind of in in that uh, interesting realm of somebody that there have been funky specials and crankshaft and you've seen it around but it's not also not plastered all over the place where I'm going to, you know, like maybe you'll see a t-shirt every so often, bootlegged or not, licensed or not, but uh, you're not going to see that. And th and that's really is that respectfulness of an artist there. Well, it, it's just, you know, it, it was nothing planned. Uh, I would have taken all the licensing people would have thrown at me, but um, <laughs> it didn't happen. And, and the, the silver lining to all that is just what you described. I, I wasn't tied down. I think in just some brief conversations I had with Charles Schultz, I think he felt a little restricted uh, that he couldn't do things with his characters because of the very things you mentioned. Uh, if my characters had started out when he started out and they were funky jeans and, and it certainly came like Archie, I never would have been able to do what I did. So uh, it allowed me to take a path that creatively was much more satisfying, you know, and uh, it, it, you know, it took me to this point uh, and things are going very well. I mean, if everything, if there had been all this licensing when I first started, uh, it would have been different. I'd have been in a much bigger house, but it would have been a different situation. And finally, my conversation with Tom Leopold, actor and writer Tom Leopold from Cheers and Seinfeld and a bunch of other things that you probably didn't even realize. So if you go back and listen to that interview, there's a lot of really cool anecdotes, as well as all of them. They're, I think the majority of them are not time sensitive, so you can listen at any time, no matter what time of year or any year. So, uh, And then also I have my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur. So. Thanks again. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening and all the support over, well, the last year. So uh, I hope to keep going another year or two or ten or however long I'm going to plan on doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> when Chevy Chase left Saturday Night Live, I know we covered some of this stuff last time, but we, his first special, you know, in order for him to leave, he owed them a special. And he was the biggest thing in the country at the time. And, and so he asked me to write on it. Brian Murray, Billy Murray's brother, Paul Schaefer. So I've known Paul ever since then. And we were writing our special and the Brady Bunch Comedy Hour, or whatever it was called, with the swimming pool. Yep. It had a swimming pool and bathing beauties. 
And then the part, the, not partridge, but the Brady family dressed up in like, dressed up like in uh, like funk, you know, Tower of Power costumes or something. <laughs> and so we go over there and just, you know, hang by the pool and watch the kids. And um, uh, Brian Murray put a, a Babe Ruth, not Babe, Baby Ruth chocolate bar in the pool, you know, in the, in the, cause the, so, you know, we were having a lot of fun in those days. Which, which was the gag was used in Caddyshack a couple of years later. Yeah. And Brian wrote Caddyshack. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask you a couple of these other uh, people that you worked with, especially in your acting days, because you, you, you transitioned, you did more writing as time went on. Uh, but like, in, especially in the 70s. I transitioned before it was popular. Yeah, exactly. Wait, you know, while yeah. Bruce, while Bruce Jenner was making, <laughs> was winning gold medals, you were making the transition before him. <laughs> I was being kicked out of acting. But, but you, I mean, you were around, you, like, you worked on the, the fir, not the Too Close for Comfort, but you worked on the original Ted Knight show, right? What was it like working oh, with Ted? Man. Gee, well, he was great. He was really sweet. It was just, yeah, listen to this idea for a series and then try to tell me why it didn't go. But uh, Ted Knight, I got the part of his son, <clears throat> excuse me, just a little vodka, you know, to, just to get me going. Yeah, right. First thing in the morning. <laughs> the morning martini. No, but um, <clears throat> so right after Mary Tyler Moore, he got this series where he, he ran a uh, escort service, but legitimate with all these beautiful girls mm-hmm. and they take go out on dates. I don't know why legitimate because I'm sure there never was legitimate, but, and I played his son and I'm always trying to get the, all the escort girls, you know, and um, we did like eight episodes. It was just, just the, the worst thing in the world, but it, um, now I'm told I got so back. My memory went so back into it that I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> well, with Ted Knight and, and getting I, a chance my, to work with I him. I was so immersed in how bad it was. I couldn't remember what I was saying. <laughs> but like we're working with Ted Knight for a, for a show that, I mean, he was so big. Like you think that character, the Ron Burgundy of today is basically, it's like, yeah, I already saw Ron Burgundy and that was oh, Ted yeah. Baxter in those days. That's a good point. And yeah. everybody yeah. who... Like just you know, a couple of weeks ago we lost Cloris Leachman, and you know, with the the amount of spinoffs that came from Mary Tyler Moore, and then you had uh, Lou Grant was on there, and Rhoda, and and uh, right. Phyllis, and everything, and so it's like, what's the next thing for Ted Knight? So this was his next thing. It just it it just I guess it didn't go anywhere. No, but then so we did six episodes, none of which have shown up yet on YouTube. I'm happy to say, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was doing all that kind of stuff. While I was writing, I mean, I started writing for the Lampoon and Radio Hour when I was like 20. So I'd be off doing these plays in Boston or at the Long Wharf Theater or the arena, you know, and then sending in stuff for the radio show or magazine. And so I was doing these things always kind of parallel. And then the writing took over. You know, I was on Gunsmoke and Mannix and mm-hmm. all these things, you know, and uh, which is, I always say, I'm so, sometimes I'm surprised I'm only this old. I've been doing this so much. I've been doing this since I was like eighteen. You know, I'll I'll, I'll pop Mannix on every so often. That's the one thing of with these me TV shows and 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 Antenna TV and what Grit is one of them. Every so often, I'm sure you probably will. You know, maybe pop those on and like 
go, oh, wait, maybe this is the episode where I'm in it. And, uh, you know, all those Quinn Martin production TV yeah, shows that are yeah. around there that had a lot of those contract players. So, yeah, of course you had your, you know, your Peter Falks or your uh, William Conrads, but then you would just have like this cavalcade of character actors, and you were one of those in those days. Yeah, Robert Robert Culp was always one of them, you know, and Robert Vaughn. And, yeah, and then all that 70s, really hot lighting, you know. Like, and, like, you watch Mannix, and it, the room is lit so brightly everywhere. It's like it was the whole style back then. It wasn't. It yeah. wasn't. Wasn't Mannix, by the way. Wasn't that the same set the Brady's used too? That they used sim- oh, yeah, similar no. sets. <laughs> but Mannix was great. I hold. I hold Mannix prisoner for an hour on the show. I'm a gang member. I played a lot of tough kids for some reason. I was like 120 pounds, and I don't know where that happened, why that <laughs> happened, but but um, yeah, and I did that, and oh, Gunsmoke Mannix, uh, Owen Marshall, counselor at law where Wayne Newton was my college professor. <laughs> Give me an idea what, what casting was like back then. That was, and then you were also, you were also up in the running for Fonzie, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I knew Henry Winkler <clears throat> from, from New York. We were both fired from the same theater. This one theater had two, two theaters. We had one playhouse had two theaters. And we were both fired from each of our different plays at the same day. And we went out and had coffee or beers. Or but uh, then yeah, a few years later, we're, we're, it's the, the finals for Fonzie. And, and I'm sitting there with Henry and maybe a couple of other guys. But I mean, there could have been other finalists. But in that day, that's where that, you know Henry was there, which was great to see him. And then, uh, so I guess I just couldn't go, hey, right, you know, <laughs> as good as Henry. <laughs> I couldn't go, I couldn't get my arms up to do the hair, you know? But anyway, he was great. And so after that audition, about a couple of weeks later, I, I run into Henry at the at the farmer's market, kind of famous place in LA. And I, we're, we're talking, he's like, ah, oh, yeah, man, that, that that thing we were both up for, but that, that was a piece of shit. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, well, I got it. I'm going to be Fonzie. And then, oh, and I go, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be great, man. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I know, right? <laughs> How much did the character change from what you auditioned for? Oh, it got bigger, like these things do when somebody breaks out on a show, you know, and it became the Fonzie show. But in the pilot, it was just, you know, he's just this guy, you know, maybe uh, one scene, you know, uh, if I can recall. I also auditioned for the Partridge family. Oh, really? David Cassidy thing. Yeah, because I was the same age in yeah. those days. Not cute enough. Story of my life, buddy. Boy, well, Just yeah, but uh, I don't think anyone could even get to that part, and everyone was very jealous of that part, including Jack Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he set himself on fire. Yeah. He was so upset. Lit himself, yeah. yeah, lit himself on fire with a cigarette on a Naga Hyde couch. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm somewhere in the flats of Beverly Hills, you know. <laughs> I said, I don't want to, I don't want to go on the flats in Beverly Hills. Man. I wanna, if I'm going to die, I want to be in like Rome or something, you know? Man, it, it, it what's, what's interesting. You, you really know your stuff for a young guy. How old are you? I turn 33 next week. Wow. Well, it's a, that, ties and that's yeah. what I like about old entertainment. That's what I mean. I'm so surprised that, you know, that you, you're, you're, you know, so many of these things. It's like, sometimes I feel like, it, you know, there's 80 year old guys who, Rich guys who get married to a twenty-year-old woman. And he's trying to explain what you know, Hopalong Cassidy was. 
<laughs> no. But so uh, it's nice when someone is, you know, was into that, you know, into that old stuff instead of just the stuff of their time, you know.